Well, Freya, another big week in New South Wales Parliament here in Macquarie Street. We had we had the situation where in question time, mm. it was extraordinarily difficult to actually get any answers to our questions. The police minister was repeatedly asked questions about what she did, what the Premier's office did, and there was just complete stonewalling. It was incredible to see, actually. It was a bit weird, and I was watching Question Time while it was happening, and it actually got to a point where the police minister, Yasmin Catley, was just like, oh, well, I've answered that before, and then we just walk off. She seemed to have prepared answers that in no sense met the question, and there was a yeah. real arrogance. It wasn't just her. It was There was a real arrogance about the way in which they were treating mm. Parliament and treating questions within mm. their portfolio, which I thought was actually quite troubling. And this this minority Labor government yeah. has no entitlement to be arrogant. They should be they should be responding to the people of New South Wales. And I think and, and then also the police minister was then asked some questions about law enforcement conduct commission report into police and domestic violence. Mm. And it was almost as if she hadn't read the report, was unaware of the recommendations. She didn't even answer that. It was really almost in the in the nature of a Dorothy Dixer, and so from the opposition. And mm-hmm. so, really, there are big questions about her performance and the performance generally of the Min's ministers yeah. with regard to their competency and being across their portfolio responsibilities. That's exactly right. It honestly did seem as though she had not read the report, which is quite slack. It's quite slack. While you're in opposition, maybe, but you're in government, and so you do have to step it up. Well, they've got they've got the resources well, and, and the, the responsibility yeah. to, to to be read. The report was two weeks old, it was, and there were thirteen recommendations. She didn't appear to be aware of any of them from the way yeah. in which she answered the question. So that was very concerning. And then today, of course. ICAC dropped a massive two-volume report mm. with regard to Gladys Berejiklian. Yeah. Uh, there's been a lot of discussion, bipartisan discussion, about the fact that ICAC has taken so long. Mm. Almost, it was September of 2021 when she last gave evidence, the last piece of evidence in that inquiry. It's, yeah. it's taken an incredibly long period of time to write this report. Significantly, no finding of any personal benefit to Gladys Berejiklian. And a lot of people, personal financial benefit. And a lot of Mm. people are kind of scratching their heads, trying to understand how she could have been found seriously corrupt without committing a criminal offence. It may indicate that Berejiklian's lawyers may look at whether ICAC has properly properly interpreted the word Mm. serious. I don't know. Anyway, we'll we'll That's see. Right. We'll see what they do. It's really in the hands of her lawyers now as to what they do. Mm. But look, no one can take away the fact that she led she led the state incredibly well. Yes. She worked enormously hard. Those of us who worked closely with her saw how hard she worked. Yeah. She had an image of being absolutely squeaky clean. So these mm. findings against her are, are a surprise to say the least, for the people that have, that know her and work yeah. worked with her. But anyway, I, I suspect that this has got a bit to play out. It's still relatively uh, you know, mm. recent as we record 
record this podcast. And, and I guess the other thing that happened on the last sitting day today of this week is the private member's bill that was moved by Rory Amon, who was, mm, has, been a, has been yes. a guest on our podcast, the member for Pittwater. He moved a bill to try and protect the, the offshore marine life mm. in New South Wales, not only in his electorate, which of course is the Northern Beaches, but yeah. marine life throughout New South Wales from mining and, and, and other mm. uh, activities that would be harmful to that marine environment. And somewhat surprisingly, Alex Greenwich, with the support of many of the crossbench, moved to actually send it off to a committee rather than allow the parliament in the ordinary course to debate the bill and to decide whether the parliament will pass it or not. So slack. So slack. Well, I mean, do you think... They can't possibly, after that, claim that they're genuinely interested in banning offshore mining. Well, maybe they are, but they're more interested in blocking the Liberals from having any win on the environment than they are from actually protecting the environment. Well, well, the I, look, I, I don't actually want to put it in terms of win or loss mm. for the Liberals. This is all about the communities along, along yeah, the New South so Wales true. coastline. And... Their marine life will be, you know, in a worse mm. position in terms of its protection. While this process has now been the, the legislative process, mm. which could have gone through the parliament really relatively quickly, we're unlikely to see any legislation now until the end of the year. You know, we saw many of the coalition MPs with coastal seats, whether it be on the Central Coast, Adam Crouch, whether it be mm. uh, the member for Manly, James Griffin. Kelly Sloan. Kelly Sloan, absolutely. We've got um, National Party MPs in Port Stephen, Port Macquarie, I'm sorry. Mm. We, we've got Coffs Harbour. Port Macquarie, sorry, is, is, is Leslie Williams, but Gurmesh Singh and other MPs, Oxley and so yeah. on. These electorates all go along the coast, but of course there are, there are a number of non-coalition electorates who are impacted. Yes. Uh, you know, Lismore, Coogee. South Coast, Coogee, uh, Bega. And where were they standing up and, and pushing the Labor Party to protect the marine life off, off, you know, off their electorates. And Labor did commit to banning PEP 11. In fact, if I'm not mistaken, it was a 100-day commitment. So in their first 100 days in Parliament. And there were, as you just mentioned, multiple MPs with coastal electorates for whom this was a big issue for those... It was a big issue for those communities. And then to see those members turn around and go... Oh, well, we're going to refer this to a committee. We're going to slow down the process. And then, you know, they tried to find reasons that, that they could refer this to the committee. But, like, it wasn't needed. Kicking it into touch, you know, kicking it down, down the track. Apparently, the parliamentary committee is going to determine the constitutional validity of the bill. I would have thought that's a matter for the courts. The, the the bill was drafted with some care to only be concerned with New South Wales jurisdiction and not transgress mm. into uh, Commonwealth jurisdiction. So, look, it, it's all a bit disappointing. Totally. And, and it would have been 
uh, better for it to pass through the Legislative Assembly. Maybe in the in the August break, the Upper House could have had a committee that looked at it and, and we could have voted on it when the Parliament resumes after the July break. But that didn't happen. So that, look, and, and we obviously saw many MPs like Rory Amon, like Kelly Sloan, like James Griffin, like Adam Crouch, pretty passionate mm. about protecting their electorates yeah. from offshore mining, underwater mining and, and other activities within their electorate. So, so very disappointing that that's been pushed down the road mm. by Labor with the support of some of the crossbench. Not all of it, but some of the crossbench. Mm. And very ironic considering Chris Minns continually goes out and talks about how we're in a hung parliament and he's open to constructive feedback from all sides of politics. Broken promises all over the place. Uh. It, it, it hasn't really quite worked out the way that he presents it to the public. And I think that's disappointing in terms mm. of in terms of the perception of his government and perception of New South Wales Parliament. But look, another week in Macquarie Street. Yep. Great to have another episode of this podcast. Well, on this episode of Macquarie Street Matters, I'm very happy to welcome Matt Cross, the member for Davidson and adjoining electorate to the great seat of Warunga. And Matt, welcome to Macquarie Street Matters. Thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having me, Alison. Well, Matt, we've now been uh, sitting for about four weeks of the parliament, the new parliament. And how are you feeling? How are you settling in? Oh, look, it's a really great honor being elected. And to be in the parliament for particularly the first four weeks, you know, it's really important because this is the decision-making body where legislation is made where the robust debate is made. And of course, it's called the bear pit because we know that it's not for the hearted being in the Legislative Assembly. And I certainly enjoyed my time in the bear pit. Now, you uh, you grew up on the North Shore. You attended St. Leo's, which is in my electorate. Great school. And do you want to tell us a little bit about your journey into Parliament? Yeah, so I went to St. Leo's and I think that really instilled a social justice element into my beliefs. I think in politics, your values are just so important. So being able to have a really strong grounding is, is so important, particularly when thinking about how we influence or make decisions. After school, I loved history and, and went to Sydney University to study history. And I, when I finished university, I was a bit lost at what to do. And of all people, Barry O'Farrell called me when I was on the train at the Sydney Harbour Bridge. predecessor. And, Correct. Yeah. And he, he called me and said, uh, oh, would you like to come and work for just a few weeks in my office. He was the then leader of the opposition and it lasted six years. It was a really great apprenticeship working for Barry. And he certainly taught me the importance of discipline and focus. And on that first phone call, he said to me, look, one thing, if you come into my office, no faction games. I think that's really important. You know, if we're going to win government back, we need to be united. No doubt about that. And focus is also, uh, and discipline are very important messages. So you, you didn't just work for Barry O'Farrell, you also worked for Mike Baird. And then do, do you think that your interest in government was influenced by the fact that your father was an engineer, he'd worked on roads and building infrastructure? Was that part of the attraction to politics? Yeah, I think so. It's, it's all about public service. And people talk about public service as just being, you know, elected officials also is bureaucracy. And, you know, as liberals, I think we should always respect 
public service. And from what I did, I mean, he built rockets and it was, it was really, and he'd come home at night and, and you'd talk about what he was working on, you know, the M2, the M7, you know, game-changing infrastructure projects. And when he received his 40th um, service medallion, 40 year service medallion, his colleagues said that an amazing energy, integrity, and that's something that certainly, you know, I'm really proud of him. And I think hopefully it certainly it does wash onto me the way I look at public life. You, you may not realize, but my father actually spent 35 years working for the Hunter District Water Board. So looking after their property and so on, he, he trained as an architect in the Netherlands. So yeah, th this idea that you are building, you know, I think it's a great uh, privilege to have had family where they're committed to building our state and then being able mm. to, to follow that on. Of course... The, the interesting interplay between elected representatives and the public service is that we have to ensure uh, that the public service are serving the public. And that's the accountability on behalf of the community to not be against them, but to be ensuring that their focus remains on doing the best for our state. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And when I worked for Barry Fowl and Mike Baird in the Premier's office, uh, what we always expected from the public service was frank and fearless advice. Tell us what you really think. And then, you know, certainly we as myself as, as being an advisor, but certainly Barry and Mike would then make decisions based on that frank and fearless advice. You know, we can do the, the political overlay on it, but, but in terms of the real raw public policy, yeah, the public service is so important. And so after working for, for Barry and then Mike Baird, you then, I think, left left sort of direct politics and, and did some other things. What were some of the other things that you've done? So I think it's really important for anyone who wants to go into politics, elected politics, that they do get that experience in the and not profit sectors. And that's exactly what I did. So I worked at the Property Council of Australia and certainly the issues that we were talking about, things like home ownership, renting, sustainability when it comes to buildings, so important. I had a, had a stint at KPMG being a management consultant. And that was important because clearly leadership is about solving problems. And that's certainly what we did. And then finally, the last four years, just before I got elected, was working in medical research. And just a shout out to all medical researchers out there. They are just amazing individuals that are, certainly that's where I get my interest in preventative. Well, all researchers in a sense, because researchers are actually helping with the advancement of society whether it be medicine, whether it be other scientific areas, whether it be social research. I mean, they're all providing the foundations to for society to continue to advance. Incredibly important that quiet achievers, mm. maybe not acknowledged enough, actually, mm. in our community. So you spoke, and, and then, of course, you, you went and did some further study. Mm. You went to Harvard, met your wife there. Oh, that was the best thing. Moving to the US, so of course my wife, my wife Jessica's, she's originally from Haiti and uh, then migrated to the United States when she was 17 and was so blessed to be able to meet her, our paths crossed uh, when you were studying overseas and she decided to move to Australia and look, I can say this, I, I wouldn't be the person I am today or even in Parliament having that love and support at home. Now, other than Jessica, what was actually your most important take out of the Kennedy School and, and going to Harvard? 
So the Kennedy School is, of course, named after John F. Kennedy. And in his famous inaugural speech, he said, you know, ask not what you can do for your country. Oh, yeah, ask what you can do for your country. And I think that's just so important. Public service is serving others, making sure that you're leaving to the next generation a society that's even greater than what we inherited. So that focus on public service really did come really strong. And the concept of leadership is solving problems. So all of us as public officials will have problems come across our desk. And of course, we need to focus on making sure that everything we're doing is, is exactly that making the lives better for people. And uh, then you came back, worked for a while, and now you put your hand up to pre-selection. Of course, you you, you ran against pre-selection against me oh, in yeah. 2015. The, the, I forgot that for a second. But the better person won, of course. And so I'd like to say, you know, say thank you for winning because you know, that allowed me to, to go off and you know clearly meet my wife uh, overseas. But you know, that, that was a a good experience. And I guess what I say to, to your listeners is anyone who has an interest in running for politics, have a go. You might not get there the first time, but I think Alistair, if I hadn't put my hand up in 2015 and lost in a, in a respectful way to you, I don't think I could have won eight years later because I wouldn't have been able to experience or that belief to keep going. And what I learned from that experience helped drive me going forward. You certainly learn a lot of lessons and it's, uh, it's a unique experience. Running for a contested pre-selection, that's uh, one traditionally been one of the differences between, of course, the Liberal Party and the Labor Party. Mm. The Labor Party appoint a lot of people centrally to be candidates. The coalition's always had a great respect for the rank-and-file voluntary party participating in pre-selection. We haven't always done it, but we do it a lot more than Labor does. And, and I mean, it's fascinating to hear people like John Howard, for example, who lost a pre-selection in Dremoyne, lost a pre-selection in Bradfield before he finally was pre-selected in Benelong. Mm -hmm. So that, that route, which I think you've just described, that you've undertaken, is a valuable one in terms of improving you and making sure that you are, I guess, match-ready when you come into Parliament. I think it's, it's incredibly important. So in your inaugural speech, which you, which you gave, what, a few weeks ago now, great turnout of people. You had a huge turnout, which was absolutely great. Many, many of my friends in the Liberal Party mm. were there as well. People that I've really known and respected for a long time, including your, uh, your predecessors, uh, Jonathan O'Day and mm. Andrew Humperson. You raised kind of two issues, which I think would be interesting to discuss. Uh, you mentioned that you've worked for the Property Council. Home ownership. Incredibly important issue at the moment. Were you disappointed that Labor changed our policy, our law, so early on in this parliament that prevents people from first home buyers from being able to progressively pay stamp duty mm. as a land tax rather than pay it as a front fee? We weren't telling them which of those two choices they had to make. We were simply giving them a choice. Yeah, that's right. And in a speech I gave uh, in Parliament a few days after my inaugural speech, you know, I spoke about the March of Patriots. Uh, it's a book written by Paul Kelly, in which he talks about the Hawke Keating reforms that continued under Howard and Costello. And as we know, the GST that came in was about overall tax reform and stamp duty and payroll tax. They there were opportunities there to 
remove them as state tax of this GST. It didn't happen. So the next best thing on a state level is to yeah, give people choice. Do you pay an upfront stamp duty or do you pay broad-based land tax? And credit to Dominic Perrottet, who I believe you know is a march is a patriot and is marching as a marching patriot in pushing this reform and. New South Wales had to make tough decisions to do because, of course, stamp duty is a very attractive form of revenue for government. You know, we believe in home ownership and this is people now not having to save up that on the median price, $50,000 of stamp duty. So it was an absolute game changer. So very disappointing that Labor isn't continuing with ongoing economic reform instead. Well, well the, other no. dis- the other disappointing fact is that what... What we have tried to do in the past in terms of giving first homeowners uh, a break into the market is to progressively lift the threshold, the value of threshold above below which they don't have to pay tax and above which they get a little bit of assistance. Hmm. Now, that policy, which successive Labor and coalition governments have done in New South Wales, has seen a decline in home ownership amongst young people mm. in our community. It's it's a steady decline over several decades. And what Chris Menz has done is to go back to that formula Correct. which has failed in the past. Dominic Perrottet and, and the Liberals, the Liberal Coalition government, last year tried to try something new and different, mm. which is to make people progressively pay mm. for their home. What what it actually what our policy actually achieved was for the average first home buyer, lower tax to the government because the average person, I think, turns over their first home in about seven years. People get into the market, build some equity, and then that allows them to buy their forever home. So it it wouldn't take until 20 years of the land tax each year until people actually paid the equivalent of lump sum. So it was actually giving them also a stamp duty break through a policy if they elected that they wanted to do that, which was their choice, and we back people to actually be able to determine their best self-interests as liberals. But but Chris Minns, symptomatic, I think, of this new state Labor government, no new ideas, in fact, hostile to new ideas. You know, there's no reason why Labor should have been hostile to giving Mm. people choice to try and determine the best interest. And so their policy now cuts out any assistance at, for properties over a million dollars, which is in Sydney, mm. half a million less than the average, than the median home price, which means that the average, the middle, mm. the missing middle, labor with their means testing of active kids and everything, they are, they are attacking the middle and, and leaving the middle out. And that's a real concern because the middle is where government should really be pitching their policies, mm. not the extremities, but the middle. And the middle now is missing out under this men's New South Wales Labor government. Home ownership, incredibly important, particularly for young people. And you spoke about the fact that, you know, you don't yet have a property, you and Jessica, and, and that, that that's what you're looking mm. to do and, and, and how that's a problem for so many people your age and younger. Preventative health. Look, preventative health is so important. I mean, especially from an economic perspective. So the intergenerational report is a report that comes out 
every five years. And it instead of, so governments, when they design budgets, always look generally forward estimates, which is four years. This intergenerational report looks at the next 40 years. And when it comes to health, so health lays 19% of the overall budget, and it's going to increase to 26% over the next 40 years to 2061. And a lot of that pressure, financial pressure on the health budget is due to an increase in chronic disease. So things that can be prevented, things like cardiovascular disease, diabetes, dementia, mental health. And so not only is it good, I think, long-term for the economy, but even more importantly is the well-being of individuals. You know, we can live long, happy, successful lives through being both physically and mentally healthy. And I think it's so important that governments invest in in that. And active kids is a really good example of that type of investment we really need. Physical activity, or helping, of course, pay the bills of cost of living. Well, it always used to be an accepted wisdom. Prevention is better than cure. Mm. But too often governments come in to cure problems rather than prevent problems. Mm. And I know, you know, when I was a minister in family and community services and otherwise, dealing with some pretty hard problem, but not enough time was being devoted, I didn't think, in, in, in by the public service and so on, mm. to prevention. Health is incredibly important as well. It, it's, it's also an interesting area where actually doing the best for the community is also doing the best for the state budget. I don't think the economics driver, we're always focused on people and, and the ability to do more for people if we actually get the budget in in the right shape. Mm. But a small investment now reaps long-term benefits. And and that was really where we were getting to towards the end of our government. You know, in, in our early stages of the of the 12 years of coalition government, you know, we had a period where we were building transport infrastructure, roads, light rail, metros, and and the like. We then pivoted to social infrastructure, building a lot of schools, building a lot of hospitals, medical facilities, and then um, a bit COVID interrupted, unfortunately, mm. another, you know, that last term we had a record drought, record bushfires, a global pandemic, floods, floods before the global pandemic and mm. floods again. So we, 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 were, we were having to manage a lot of difficulties, but we still managed to start to pivot from that social infrastructure into greater investment on our human infrastructure, which is so important. And, and you know, whether it was record funding for skills and training, whether it was record funding for future economy and, and the rest of it, we're really focusing more and more on our human capital, mm. which I think what you're talking about, preventative medicine, preventative health, is really looking at our human capital, recognizing that if we don't do it, it's going to be a massive problem. Oh, and one thing that we are hearing a lot about is there's a program called Community Building Partnership in which each local community gets two to three to four hundred thousand dollars depending on which year. And there's talk that this whole program will be now. This is infrastructure going to volunteer groups, non-profit organisations, councils, and that's actually giving to the community. So I'm really concerned, and we'll see this in the budget coming up, whether this program continues. And we need to make sure that we're continuing investing in our communities because it actually creates an economic investment because the economy will actually 
be more return to the economy based on these investments. And look, you know, it's terrible the way that the new state government is breaking so many promises mm. and attacking the very community which has elected them. You know, we've mm. seen broken promises on active kids, creative kids, first lap, mm -hmm. all geared towards the development of our of our young people. Mm. We've then got you know, broken promises in terms of electricity prices going down. They said they'd go down, they've gone up. Mm -hmm. So that's hitting families and households again. All these cost of living measures that we had given the community mm. to try and help them flourish in, in difficult times are being stripped away. And then the community building partnerships, which as you say, really goes to our volunteer mm. base. You know, if, if government had to pay... I mean, the volunteering in New South Wales did a study, I think last year or the year before, which said that the value of volunteering in New South Wales, billions of dollars, if if you had to put a dollar, if you had to pay for what you're getting through volunteers, so enormously important to continue to support those groups. And, and so the Davidson electorate has the second highest rate of volunteering in New South Wales. Do you know what electorate has the highest rate of volunteering? I think it might be mine. Yeah, it is. I mean, what a community we live in that you know, encompasses the yeah. local government area. Our community really has a big part to the community. Causes greater than themselves. We should be really proud. And I know that you've been involved in Rotary. It's really that idea of, you know, the community above yourself. Mm. Service above self, I think, is the, the motto of Rotary. And, and that's a really good ethos. I think for everyone to live by, whether, you know, I was a PNC president, mm. you know, in, you know, in, whether involved in sporting clubs, service clubs, whatever it is, charitable organizations, whatever it is, it's mm. really important to contribute to the community. And of course, it's that volunteerism which actually binds our community mm. together. And, and that's why I think, you know, and what is the most diverse country in the whole of the world, really, in terms of religious, ethnic diversity, we have such a harmonious society. Oh, it's our strength. Our multicultural communities are our strength. And you know, Jess, being Haitian-American, you know, she, I, I am now a part of a, a multicultural family, and it's, it's just wonderful to have that. And if we look at the, the brick of the Australian society, we, we, we're so blessed to, to live in community. Best country in the world. Best country in the world. We've got to keep it that way. That's why we care about government and politics. Thanks so much for joining Macquarie Street Management Week. I hope I hope you've enjoyed the experience and, and all the very best with your career in Parliament. Two biggest fans, I think, of the Premier and Minister for Health. So thank, thank you also for listening. It was so great to have Matt Cross on, the new member for Davidson. He gave a really insightful interview and, yeah, great ideas about preventative health and what he wants to see in his community. It was great to have my neighbour in the adjoining yes, seat on Macquarie Street Matters. And I agree with you. He's obviously had a lot of experience in the political process He's a great contributor to uh, speeches and so on in Parliament. It was great to hear from him today.